I hear this pop, pop, pop. It was one of the most harrowing days in our history, the attempted assassination of President Reagan. It's screaming, yelling, it's chaos. Tonight, an unprecedented look into the mind and new life of the gunman, John Hinckley Jr., with the stories you haven't heard. The cop who questioned Hinckley speaks out on network TV for the first time. I just didn't think that he realized the magnitude of what he had done. From behind the hospital walls. He turned to her and said, will you marry me? Secrets from his diaries uncovered by Dateline. His obsession with actress Jodie Foster. The letters were assumed to have been, you know, love type letters. And the most controversial question of all, is Hinckley really fit to be free? He's a potentially dangerous character. He's proven that. Nearly 40 years later, what we're only learning now about the man who shot a president and shook the country. I'm Lester Holt, and this is Dateline. Here is special contributor Troy Roberts with Hinckley, Diary of a Dangerous Mind. Charming, small town, Williamsburg, Virginia. People visit from all over the world for a taste of America's colonial history. This man came for something more, a new life, one that would be quiet and normal. He volunteers at a church. He plays a lot of music, goes on walks. But his journey to get here was a long one, filled with violence, mental illness, and confinement. This is a violently insane person, so you need to put him somewhere where you can't harm anybody. No one would ever guess it now, but this 64-year-old casually walking around town is an infamous figure, a man who once tried to kill the President of the United States over a movie star. John Hinckley Jr. Today, after being institutionalized for nearly 35 years, he is pretty much a free man. It was a rainy spring Monday in Washington, D.C., just a few months after Ronald Reagan was elected president. March 30th, 1981 is 70 days into Reagan's first term, and it's a nothing day. He's given a speech at the Washington Hilton. A nothing day that was about to turn into a day no one would ever forget. Los Angeles Times reporter Del Wilbur interviewed well over 100 people for his book, Rawhide Down. Rawhide, the Secret Service codename for President Reagan. We're going to convince this city that the power begins and ends with the people. He gives a speech. He's walking out. It's 2.27 p.m. I was part of the press pool, which is the small group of reporters who follow along in the motorcade. PBS so NewsHour anchor pool. and managing editor Judy Woodruff was the White House correspondent for NBC News. He came out the door and was waving. I remember he raised his arm to wave to people there. 15 feet away was a rope line which separated a small crowd of reporters and bystanders from the president. In that crowd, a sandy blonde-haired 25-year-old named John Hinckley Jr. Moments later, 
sounded like firecrackers. You knew in, a, in an instant it couldn't be firecrackers. You then assumed it was a gun. And he unleashes six shots in 1.7 seconds. Everybody yelled, get down, get down. And all I saw was a jumble of people shoving the president and I couldn't tell who else into a car. Hinckley seemed to shoot recklessly, almost randomly, in Reagan's direction. All three networks had camera crews at the event, which later allowed reporters to break down every horrifying moment. First shot hits Jim Brady in the head. He falls to the ground. He's the presidential press secretary. The second shot hits Tom Delahanty, a DC police officer in the back. He falls to the ground. Fourth shot hits Tim McCarthy, Secret Service agent, who turned and took a shot in the chest without a bulletproof vest. I remember yelling in the chaos. I said, was the president hit? And they said, I don't think so. Did you see John Hinckley outside of the hotel? I saw police on top of a man, had wrestled him to the ground, and I couldn't really see anything. We looked at footage from that day with Del Wilbur. That's a Secret Service agent with an Uzi. Get out of the way! And that's Hinckley, so they're hustling him over to this car. President Reagan's son, Ron, was in Lincoln, Nebraska, when he was told about the shooting. I see across the room a Secret Service man coming towards me, and he very quietly told my wife and I that, uh, that shots had been fired. They didn't think he was hit. We now have an announcement from the White House. Definitely, the president was not hit. But inside the presidential limo, a different story was playing out. Reagan's increasingly complaining of pain in his chest back inside, right here, right? Really hurts. And he pulls a napkin out of his right coat pocket that he'd taken from the Hilton, paper napkin, dabs his lips, looks at it, and there's bright, frothy blood. President Reagan had been shot, and his life was in danger. Wilbur explained exactly how he was wounded. So we're watching a slow motion replay of the shooting. And right around here, boom, look how close he is. Look at the gun. And the way to Reagan's clear. And right here, the bullet hits right there and gets through that little gap. Through the tiny gap created by the open door of the bulletproof car, hitting the president. An incredible fluke. It was Hinckley's sixth and final shot. Secret Service agents raced him to George Washington University Hospital, where doctors found the bullet dangerously close to President Reagan's heart. Judy, I'm sorry to interrupt. NBC cut into Woodruff's report with the news. In front of me now are two bulletins that both say President Reagan was shot in the chest. The president was rushed into surgery. Meanwhile, the FBI was desperately trying to find out what happened. Retired FBI agent Thomas Baker. We didn't know, was this part of a conspiracy? Were there going to be other people shot? The answers would be much stranger and more chilling than they could possibly imagine. And it turned out, the clues were hiding in plain sight. A president shot, a nation reeling. When we come back... Reagan came within a couple minutes of dying. A couple of minutes. A couple minutes, maybe even a minute. And the first network TV interview with a detective who questioned Hinckley minutes after the attack. He just seemed matter-of-factly like this wasn't really a, a big deal.
The news was everywhere. President Ronald Reagan had been shot in Washington, D.C. Still is absolute confusion and uh, a terrible sinking feeling that America has lived through so many times in the past. President Reagan and the three men shot near him were all taken to nearby hospitals, some with life-threatening injuries. Brady had a catastrophic brain injury. McCarthy shot in the liver. Delahanty, a bullet lodged near his spine. And the president with one lodged only an inch from his heart. How close did he come to dying? Uh, Reagan came within a couple minutes of dying. Meanwhile, the man who shot them was in the custody of the Washington, D.C. police. Retired homicide detective Eddie Myers was the first person to question Hinckley. More than 38 years since that day, this is his first network television interview. He looked like a college student. He just didn't seem to fit the profile of what I thought a presidential assassin would be like. What was John Hinckley's demeanor when you were about to begin your interview? He just seemed matter-of-factly like this wasn't really a, a big deal. Myers said Hinckley told him his name, his parents' address, and the room number at the hotel where he had been staying. He also assured the detective he acted alone. Did you ask him that question directly? Yes, I did. Something to the effect, uh, are you by yourself? And he responded, I'm with no one. Did he ask any questions about the condition of the president or Mr. Brady? No, he never did. He never seemed concerned. No remorse? No remorse at all. Desperate for any clue or evidence that could explain the motive for the shooting, Meyer searched Hinckley's wallet and found photos. I know it's three or four of them from magazines, I think they were. But, did you uh, ask him who this person was? Yeah. And what did he say? He says, you'll find out when you get to read the letter in my room. At that point, Meyer said Hinckley shut down and refused to say more. What struck him most was that Hinckley seemed arrogant, almost smug. I said, you're going to be charged with attempted assassination of the president of the United States. And as I'm writing this in my notes, I'm having a hard time spelling assassination. And he says, I'll spell it for you. Soon after, Hinckley was turned over to the FBI. And by evening, word of Hinckley's arrest was public. The man who fired the shots today has been identified as John Warnock Hinckley of Evergreen, Colorado. I'm thinking to myself, that is so weird that the guy who shot the president has the same name as my friend John Hinckley. As kids, Evan Price, Kurt Dooley, and Will Francis were friends with Hinckley. Growing up in the same wealthy Texas suburb, they didn't believe the shooter was their John until they heard where he went to school. I was in disbelief. I thought to myself, I know this guy, friendly person, good-natured person. This can't be happening. It was hard for all of them to square the would-be assassin with the friend they had known for more than a decade. Yeah, look how happy he, he looks. He is handsome and happy and looks great. Here's John. They met Hinckley in the 60s and bonded over sports and music. He was a very well-liked guy. We would go to record shops, music stores, places to have a burger. At home, John Hinckley was the youngest of three. His father, Jack, the owner of an oil and gas business, his friends say the family seemed perfect, straight out of the TV classic, Leave it to Beaver. 
I would spend the night over there, and it was a great family. And she was just June Cleaver. You would, and his dad was more like Ward. So what changed for the kid who grew up with everything? Back in Washington, the FBI was wondering the same thing. That night, agents were at the Park Central Hotel where Hinckley had been staying. We executed a search warrant of his hotel room. Thomas Baker was the agent in charge and oversaw the search. There on the desk, we found the letter, the statement of why he was doing this. The letter revealed that Hinckley didn't try to kill the president for political reasons. He did it because of a dark and twisted obsession with a woman. Coming up, raw pain for the Reagan family. Let me get my hands on this this son of a bitch. And Hinckley's fixation on actress Jodie Foster. The letters were assumed to have been, you know, love type letters. When Dateline continues. Hey guys, Willie Geist here, reminding you to check out the Sunday Sit-Down Podcast. On this week's episode, I get together with seven-time Grammy winner Casey Musgraves to talk about the inspiration for her new album, the process she uses to write those beautiful songs, and finding success while bucking convention in Nashville. You can get our conversation now for free wherever you download your podcasts. For true crime fans, nothing is more chilling than watching Dateline. Have you ever seen such a thing before? For podcast fans, nothing is more chilling than listening. What goes through your mind when you make a discovery like that? And when you subscribe to Dateline Premium, it gets even better. Excuse me if I sound a little skeptical. Every episode is ad-free. Ooh, wow. So this could be your ace in the hole. And not just ad-free, you also get early access to new intriguing mysteries and exclusive bonus content. So what were you afraid of? Dateline Premium on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe now. You ready for what's coming? As night fell over the Capitol, the nation could finally breathe a sigh of relief. President Reagan tonight is reported in stable and good condition. McCarthy, Brady, and Delahanty also survived surgery, some miraculously. Brady's surgery was very delicate and very complicated. And it took the doctor all day to stop the bleeding and hemorrhaging and get the, the bullet fragments out of Brady's brain. The public still had no idea why John Hinckley tried to kill President Reagan. Even the president's family hadn't been told anything. His son, Ron, struggled with his anger. Somebody shoots your father and you're a 22-year-old guy. You're, you know, your first thought is, let me get my hands on this, this son of a bitch. Were you thinking, what would drive John Hinckley to want to kill my father? Well, you figure it's either some sort of political motive or he's just crazy. But FBI agents who had found that letter in Hinckley's hotel room were learning his motives weren't at all political. Hinckley was fueled by an obsession with actress Jodie Foster. The letter was written to her. Dear Jodie, there is a definite possibility that I will be killed in my attempt to get Reagan. It is for this very reason that I am writing you this letter now. Secret Service Retired FBI agent Thomas Baker. He explained he was doing this great act of love to impress her and win her heart. 
I've got to do something now to make you understand, in no uncertain terms, that I am doing all of this for your sake. The FBI needed to talk to Foster. When agents arrived at Yale University, where she was a student, the actress was visibly upset. She told them that Hinckley started writing her soon after she arrived on campus the previous fall and hadn't stopped. Was he threatening? What was he like? I'm not allowed to say. Foster held a press conference a few days later. The letters were assumed to have been, you know, love-type letters. Have you ever seen Hinckley that you know of? No, I've never, not to my knowledge, I've never met him. The FBI learned Hinckley had told his parents he was attending a Yale writer's program, but that was a lie. Well, he wasn't in any writer's program. He was there living in a hotel and stalking Jodie Foster. And was slipping notes under her door, love notes. This note was left for her just weeks before the shooting. Jody, goodbye. I love you six trillion times. Don't you maybe like me just a little bit? You must admit, I am different. It would make all of this worthwhile. When did his obsession with Jodie Foster begin? 1976. He was in LA, trying to be a songwriter, failing at it, and he saw the movie Taxi Driver. He saw it more than a dozen times. Remember, she plays like a prostitute, like a adolescent prostitute in the movie, and he became obsessed with her. Robert De Niro played the main character, Travis Bickle, a socially awkward taxi driver who plans to kill a presidential candidate. You completely identify with Bickle. He thought that he was going to shoot Reagan and die in a hail of secret silver bullets, just as Bickle thought he would. But investigators quickly discovered Hinckley considered other options first, like hijacking a plane and even killing the woman he claimed to love. His plan was to kill Jodie Foster, shoot her, shoot himself, or kill himself in front of her. Hinckley's lawyers thought all of this could be the basis of an insanity defense. Dr. Carpenter was excused. And they hired psychiatrist William Carpenter in the hopes he'd provide testimony that would convince a jury. Carpenter met with Hinckley for months and charted his unraveling. What was his relationship like with his parents? There wasn't anything that seemed like childhood neglect or trauma. But Carpenter learned Hinckley started to withdraw from friends in high school and then completely isolated himself in college. His parents were worried and took him to see a psychiatrist who told them Hinckley was simply immature and needed tough love. More than once, they'd kind of cut him off. The strategy backfired. Hinckley's hopelessness showed in his poems, songs, and journals. They're kind of dark, anticipatory things in it, and it's certainly compatible with an unhappy and lonely life. In Hinckley's poem, Guns Are Fun, the foreshadowing of the shooting is clear. If I wish, the president will fall, and the world will look at me in disbelief. By the end of his evaluation, Carpenter concluded Hinckley was legally insane. His official diagnosis? In the diagnostic codes that we use, the most suitable one would be schizophrenia. But could the defense convince a jury? The prosecution had their own experts and planned to argue Hinckley was perfectly sane. He was legally sane because he knew it was wrong, because he knew he was shooting at humans in a way that could harm them. The trial would be a seven-week battle of the experts, 
over whether Hinckley was sane or not. Potential answers to that question were buried in a remarkable diary that Hinckley wrote and that dateline uncovered. Coming up, evidence that Ronald Reagan wasn't Hinckley's only target. John Hinckley had plans to kill President Jimmy Carter? Yes. On the night he was arrested, hours after trying to kill the president, John Hinckley began to keep a diary. March 30th, 1981, rushed to DC police headquarters, spent three hours handcuffed to desk. He would continue writing in it for 14 months up to and through his trial, uncovered by Dateline and shown here for the first time on network television. The diary is a remarkable insight into Hinckley's troubled mind. I have such an empty, sad feeling. Where are you, Jody? Hinckley titled it, The Diary of a Person We All Know. At times, it's a chronicle of despair. Why go on? I'm immortally infamous, equal to John Wilkes Booth, but I've had enough. Days after that entry, Hinckley tried to commit suicide, his second attempt. After he recovered, he seemed to have a moment of clarity about the shooting. There are many times when I thoroughly regret the incident, and then many times when I think about what I have accomplished and feel satisfied. But by the spring of 1982, Hinckley seemed ready, almost giddy, for the nation to hear his story. Everyone is excited now. I'm a little excited. Let's get it on. It will be a miracle and nothing short of a miracle if I am found not guilty. A year had passed since the shooting, but the damage Hinckley caused was still fresh in people's minds. He could have changed the course of history. Absolutely. This foolish, unstable young man could have changed the course of history. President Reagan and Secret Service agent McCarthy took weeks to fully recover from their injuries. While Officer Delahanty suffered permanent nerve damage that forced him to retire early, but it was James Brady who suffered the most. His brain injuries caused permanent paralysis and severe challenges for the remainder of his life. Arguments in the trial of John W. Hinckley finally began today in the U.S. District As Court testimony began, both sides knew the defense had the advantage. The law stated they didn't have to prove a thing. NBC News legal analyst Danny Savalas. At the time of the Hinckley trial, the prosecution had the burden to prove each and every element of the crime, including the defendant's sanity. The prosecution began by showing jurors footage of the shooting. They argued Hinckley was not mentally ill when he pulled the trigger. Just a sad, narcissistic loner fixated on achieving worldwide fame. Lead psychiatrist, Dr. Park Dietz. He told me that his goal was to be on the cover of Time magazine. And Hinckley's fixation on the film Taxi Driver? Prosecutors argued it didn't mean he was insane. The movie's plot was merely inspirational. He was already interested in committing some high-profile crime. He fell upon Taxi Driver, and he did try to imitate aspects of it. And his diary revealed 
Hinckley thought the trial was the perfect stage for his story. Jody, Jody, everyone in the whole wide world knows about us. I think what I did was worth it. In the courtroom, prosecutors argued Hinckley knew exactly what he was doing when he shot the president, that it was a premeditated plan, months in the making, and originally with a different target. He actually had been stalking the previous president, Jimmy Carter. In the fall of 1980, Hinckley bought guns, went target shooting, and followed Carter on the campaign trail. We recovered news footage of Carter at different rallies in the fall during the election where Hinckley's in the crowd. John Hinckley had plans to kill President Jimmy Carter? Yes, and it just never worked out for him. So then he switched his attention to President Reagan after he became president. When it was the defense team's turn, they told jurors Hinckley did not understand these violent actions were wrong because... His judgment was impaired by schizophrenic delusions. The only meaningful thing in his life is his delusional attachment with Jodie Foster. Dr. Carpenter testified Hinckley created an entire fantasy world where that attachment could exist. He developed this grandiose view of Jodie and him as a couple. He thought this is something that everybody should know about killing Carter, killing Reagan. He needed something that would call attention to this. And his attempts to connect with Foster were his way of trying to convince her they were meant to be. The defense had jurors listen to a phone call Hinckley recorded between himself and the actress. Hello. Oh, no, no, you're dead. Look, I really can't talk to you, okay? You understand why I can't, you know, carry on these conversations with people I don't know. You understand that it's dangerous, oh, all right? Well, I'm not well, I understand that. Jodie Foster did not appear at trial, but her testimony was videotaped weeks earlier. Hinckley was present for it, and for the first time, came face-to-face with the object of his obsession. Only a transcript was released to the media. How would you describe your relationship with John Hinckley? I don't have any relationship with John Hinckley. Her words infuriated him. In his diary that night, he wrote that he threw a pen at her and shouted, Jody, I'm still going to kill you. He went on to write, Oh my God, what have I done? I'm insane, aren't I? I went too far this morning. Everyone is angry with me. Jody hates me. Oh, I'm so famous, but I'm so damn miserable. Would the jury find Hinckley a calculating would-be killer? Or a madman who couldn't tell right from wrong? Why didn't you run to the decision, you think? Their verdict would leave the nation outraged. Coming up, the jury speaks. To say America was shocked by the Hinckley verdict is an understatement. And then, Hinckley makes a connection with a serial killer. When Dateline continues... The jury in the John Hinckley Jr. case was sequestered, deliberating for days with no sign of a verdict. Despite the wait, the prosecution's lead psychiatrist wasn't worried. You were confident the jurors were going to see things your way? Yes, I didn't for a moment think it could be otherwise. 
By the fourth day, the verdict was in. The verdict on John Hinckley, not guilty by reason of insanity, turned the country upside down today, unleashing anger, outrage, disbelief, but very little praise. I was shocked. We could not wrap our heads around how a jury could get it so wrong. To say America was shocked by the Hinckley verdict is an understatement. They were furious. I think the uh, outcome so far was outrageous. But not everyone was up in arms. Surprisingly, President Reagan had found peace with Hinckley. My father had forgiven him already, long before. Within a day or so of being shot, he had forgiven. Within a day or so? Yes. My mother, on the other hand, <laughs> she'd have killed him if she could have uh, gotten her hands on him. But uh, my father had forgiven him already. He just said that he knew he had to. Hinckley celebrated the verdict in the final entry of his diary. No one can believe it. It's all over. I'm not responsible for shooting the president and three others. What must Jodie Foster be thinking right now? But the verdict didn't mean Hinckley was completely off the hook. You're going to a treatment facility, and only when you are better will you be released. Hinckley was sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., one of the oldest psychiatric institutions in the country, and put on an intense regimen of counseling and medication, including antipsychotic drugs. Over time, he seemed to change, and part of the reason for that was a woman. John and Leslie met at a Halloween party. Leslie DeVoe was her name, and she was a fellow patient at St. Elizabeth's. Writer Elsa Walsh interviewed DeVoe years later for The New Yorker magazine about her romantic relationship with Hinckley. Leslie DeVoe was described by neighbors and families and friends, even her ex-husband, as a wonderful, perfect mother, and she had killed her child. DeVoe was also found not guilty by reason of insanity for her horrifying crime and sent to the psychiatric hospital. So this Today, the, the old grounds are closed, buildings abandoned. What was it like when you came here the first time? You know, it was clearly very different from it is now. You didn't have a lot of broken windows, but Leslie and John um, used to communicate from a window, of not this building, but a very similar one, three floors up where he was. DeVoe was more than a decade older than Hinckley, and like him, came from an upper-middle-class background and was educated. When they met, DeVoe didn't know who Hinckley was, and when he told her, she didn't care. She said to me, what I did was so much worse than what John did. I killed my child. They found young Aaron dead in an upstairs bedroom of the family home. One morning, DeVoe had taken her husband's shotgun, shot and killed her 10-year-old daughter Erin as she slept, then shot herself. DeVoe's injuries were so severe, doctors had to amputate her left arm. She told Walsh she never understood people's shock over her love for Hinckley. So when people sort of wonder, like, why would I have a relationship with him? You know, why would he have a relationship with me? In the beginning, they left secret notes for each other in the cafeteria, talked at chaperone events or by the window. But by the following year, Hinckley was in love and did something no one ever expected. He proposed, and DeVoe accepted. Walsh says they became each other's confidants, Hinckley trusting her with his 
darkest moments. And she said he went through this terrible period of feeling enormous shame and guilt. How's it going, Mr. Brady? Going well today? Particularly when he would see Brady, the press secretary who had shot. After three years of treatment, DeVoe was released from St. Elizabeth's, but got a job at the hospital, so Hinckley still saw her regularly. The staff at the mental hospital condoned this relationship, even supported it. Initially, yes, they did, um, because they saw it as a healthy growth. But the staff learned Hinckley was also in an astonishing relationship with someone else a relationship that raised serious questions about his progress. It was the notorious serial killer and rapist, Ted Bundy, who was on death row in Florida. Bundy sent this letter to Hinckley. Dear John, I think we've got something going here, John. It's always a pleasure to find someone I feel comfortable writing. The Secret Service discovered Hinckley started the correspondence, and the two men had been writing each other for months. Hinckley wrote this one to Bundy. Dear Ted, I read about your new death order. It really upsets me because I'm against the death penalty and I value you as a friend. And Hinckley wrote a letter. Yeah, to Doctors became more concerned after learning Hinckley still seemed to be obsessed with Jodie Foster and had some 20 photos of her in his room. He'd also considered writing to convicted killer Charles Manson and did receive a letter from Manson disciple Lynette Squeaky Fromm, who tried to assassinate President Gerald Ford in 1975. Judge Barrington Parker said this was the first he had heard of these contacts and ordered Hinckley's doctors to produce more information about his letter writing. Despite the letters, after four years, the hospital trusted Hinckley enough to let him leave his building and roam the grounds freely. He and DeVoe were still engaged and could walk outside together and have privacy. She said they went up to this little spot on a hill. They didn't have sex the first time there, but she said soon after that, they did. And she said- On the ground. On the ground. Just a few years later, Hinckley went to court to make a bid for more freedom. But would a judge allow a man who stalked two presidents and tried to kill one of them back into society? Well, you shouldn't be allowed to just roam around all on his lonesome out there. He's a potentially dangerous character. He's proven that. Coming up, the eye-popping gated community where Hinckley proposes to live. Who's played on that tee is people like President Barack Obama, former President Clinton, and this fellow's only 50 feet away. In 1997, John Hinckley Jr. was back in court, this time fighting for a bit of freedom. He spent 15 years at a psychiatric hospital and believed he was a changed man. His parents believed it too. John's whole demeanor has changed and he's a more open, uh, loving person. To them, Hinckley was no criminal. He was being treated for mental illness and deserved compassion. He wasn't a sniper on a rooftop or a religious fanatic. He was just a pathetic figure trying to impress a movie star he never met. After so many years of treatment, he wanted permission to visit his family off hospital grounds. 
Hinckley's doctors told the court his psychosis and depression were in remission and had been for years. I think what they observed is that he was less preoccupied with the psychotic delusions. But federal prosecutors didn't buy it. They believed Hinckley was still a threat to society and had evidence to prove it. A hospital pharmacist complained that Hinckley was stalking her. He would go over to her office and they'd chat and talk. And then he started bugging her. He'd come every day or he'd call. The judge denied Hinckley's request and he lost any chance of leaving the hospital grounds for a long time. But by 2003, he had stayed out of trouble for years and his doctors felt he was ready to inch back into society. They began gradually one day out in the city. By 2006, Hinckley's treatment team had recommended he be allowed to stay with his parents for days at a time, and the court agreed. The goal of San Luis Hospital is to rehabilitate, right? So they have no justification to keep really holding him. But not everyone was happy about Hinckley's increasing freedom. The house his parents had retired to was in an upscale gated community in Williamsburg, Virginia overlooking the 13th hole of the Kingsmill Championship Golf Course. That concerned the Secret Service. In the past few years, who's played on that tee is people like President Barack Obama, former President Clinton. Retired FBI agent Thomas Baker. I mean, these are the people who play golf in Williamsburg, and this fellow's only 50 feet away. Despite federal prosecutors' continued protests, the judge followed St. Elizabeth's recommendations and granted Hinckley more and more time with his parents, time that no longer included his fiancée, Leslie DeVoe. After 22 years, the relationship was over. Do you know why the relationship ended? Being identified publicly as his girlfriend was very hard for her. The Secret Service was always coming to her door. It became just too much. Hinckley's focus was now solely on being permanently released from St. Elizabeth's. And in 2016, a judge granted his request. The man who attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan is now free from a mental hospital after decades. Hinckley's father had died, so he would live with his 90-year-old mother at least for a year. Not all of Hinckley's new neighbors were convinced that was a good idea. To bring him here and put him in under the care of his 90-year-old mother. Seems to be to be a pretty foolish decision. Timothy McCarthy, the Secret Service agent who took a bullet shielding President Reagan, was also skeptical. We know medicine is not an exact science. Uh, few things are. So, you know, I just hope they're right. I'm a layperson. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but it doesn't seem to me like people with these kind of severe uh, mental problems are ever really truly cured. Still, Hinckley wasn't completely free. The Secret Service would keep an eye on him, and there was a long list of court-mandated rules he had to follow, among them therapy, medication, limited travel, no media interviews, or contact with his victim's relatives or Jody Foster. But Ron Reagan is still concerned. My worry is that his narcissistic personality disorder will be affronted uh, by somebody. He will not get the respect or attention that he feels that he's owed, and he will act out again. 
in some violent way. Today, there is greater awareness and empathy for those who suffer from mental illness, but insanity defense laws have become much stricter. States were in a rush to change their insanity defenses after the Hankley trial. Some got rid of the defense altogether. Some states instituted guilty but mentally ill. In federal court, the burden of proof now has shifted to the defense team, who must prove the defendant is insane. If Hinckley were tried under the new law, many believe he would be convicted. Do you know what he's doing with himself? Yeah, you know, he volunteers at a church, goes on walks. He's established a bunch of friends over time. He also has a job of sorts, buying and selling antiques at a local mall. And it appears he's found romance again. I trust the doctors and the people who've been treating him. I trust their decision. Hinckley's childhood friends believe he's earned a second chance and wish him well. I don't expect we'll see him at our high school reunion, but if we did, I'd welcome him. But President Reagan's son believes a man who tried to assassinate the president, even if found insane, should never go free. I don't dispute that he was insane when he did what he did. But the crime that he committed was not just a crime against another person. It was also a crime against the state. The penalty has to be drastic and, I would say, permanent. Someday, Hinckley may seek unconditional freedom. But for now, he's content. During one of his last mental health evaluations, he told doctors this. This is the happiest I've been in my life. I'm happy as a clam, to be honest. I really am. That's all for this edition of Dateline. We'll see you again Friday at 10, 9 central. And I'll see you tomorrow for NBC Nightly News. I'm Lester Holt. For all of us at NBC News, good night.